This is the On The Banks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation. Now, here's your host, Lance Glenn. Hello, everyone. I am, of course, your host, Lance Glynn, and this is episode 82 of the On The Banks podcast. If you don't already, you can follow me on Twitter at Lance underscore G11, and you can follow On The Banks on Twitter as well at OTB underscore SB Nation. If you enjoy what we do with the On The Banks podcast, make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us just by searching On The Banks. With the return of Rutgers Sports, make sure to check out OnTheBanks.com for all your Rutgers news, opinions, and information on every game and everything happening during the week. With the return of Rutgers football, we have brought back our Rutgers football weekly podcast preview. Week 1, Michigan State. Last week, Indiana. And this week, Ohio State. Joining me on our Week 3 preview is sports columnist for NJ.com, Steve Politti, to talk Rutgers and Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com and the Buckeye Talk podcast to discuss Ohio State. Rutgers, unfortunately, is coming off a 37-21 loss to Indiana, but a game where they certainly showed no quit. And and look, we, we try not to look at moral victories, but the fight in this team clearly showed against Indiana. Now, as they sit 1-1, one and one, they turn their attention to the Buckeyes, a team that we all know will contend for a national title this year. When you look at this game, I think we ask ourselves, right, what would we consider a successful trip? Obviously a win, but look, this team is year one, or in year one, I should say, of a rebuild, while Ohio State is one of the best, if not the best team in the country. So while a win would be great, it would go down as one of the biggest upsets in college football history, I think we could all agree, while we don't want, maybe want to admit it, it's unlikely. The most important thing, I believe, is that this team returns from Columbus healthy. There's a winnable game with Illinois the week after. Rutgers needs to make sure that everyone returns ready for the Illini at home in Piscataway. And I think in regards to Ohio State as well, be in the game for the first half. Don't let Ohio State go up 20, 24, 27 points in half one. Keep it within two scores or at two scores, you know, maybe between 14 and 17 points, and continue to show progress. This team through two weeks has shown fight and shown resiliency. Even when things aren't going well, they haven't given up, and so far, that's all we could ask for. Ohio State, look, they're in a different category right now than Rutgers, and all we ask for this week from RU is progress. Continue to show the fight that they have through the first two weeks and come back to Piscataway ready for Illinois. Time to talk to the reporters. Here's your host, Lance Glenn. Joining me on episode 82 of the podcast to talk Rutgers lost Indiana and look ahead at Ohio State is the sports columnist for NJ.com and the star ledger Steve Politi. Steve, appreciate the time. As always, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Lance, for having me. Appreciate it. So, Steve, let's start with the ending of the Indiana game. How would you describe, I guess, the almost double-digit lateral play? And did you think the lateral from Shameen Jones to Sam Vretman, I believe it was, did you think it was a forward pass? Uh, well, the first part, I mean, it's, it's pretty much uh, <laughs> indescribable. It was, uh, you know, it was amazing. I likened, you know, w- 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 the one, the one top when he, when uh, he heaved it over his head like he was throwing a bouquet of flowers <laughs> to, uh, at a wedding. I mean, it was just incredible the, uh, uh, the number of laterals, and it was fun to watch. I mean, the replays. I just, uh, I think I watched it 31 times, and I still had trouble charting everything that happened. Uh, you know, as for overturning it, I mean, it was really close. I'm surprised they overturned it. I mean, I guess if you look at it, it 
does look like by the letter of it that, that it might have been a forward pass. But, you know, that said, it, uh, it wasn't conclusive. I'm not sure about that. So I think what really separates this team to the previous year's teams is the lack of quit. You could see it last year, down 23-7, to the offense stalling. The game really would have been over at that point. But this year's team, look, they, they cut it to a one-score game and had the lateral play stood for a touchdown, they then would have had a chance to recover what I'm sure would have been an upcoming onside kick. And had they recovered that, you know, who knows would have happened. I, I think you'd agree with me through two games, this team has really embraced that chop mentality that Coach Yano has instilled. And, and through these first two weeks, what are some of the big changes you've noticed looking at this team compared to the last few years? Yeah, I, I think you, you hit the head of the nail. The, uh, the nail head, I'm sorry. It, it's just the attitude change of the uh, of the program under Shiano. You know, I mean, this this is a team that under Chris Ash, I think they would have been kicking field goals in the second half to, to bring to bring the, bring down the margin of defeat. I mean, honestly, I, you know, this is. I, I think that Shiano is trying to instill that attitude in his team as part of changing the culture. He said, look, we're not going to quit. We're, we're going to go for two to, 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 when, when we have a chance to cut the lane. We're, go, we're going to go for our fourth down. We're not going to punt. And this is the thing. I mean, like, thank God we're not going to punt from, you know, the the, the opposing 37-yard line I mean, just, and just surrender. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen a lot less of Adam Corsak this year, I should say. Right, exactly, <laughs> yes. Uh, he's, no he's no longer the clear MVP of the team. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's just a lot of that right now, and I think that that goes back to uh, you know, Shiano is, is is he's he's more he's he's focused more on just trying to win that one game. I think he wants to create a culture. He wants to you know change just just how this team approaches games and, and give give the team some confidence. And Noah Pedro said after the game, like you know, he loves the fact that he's got a head coach. You know, who's going to leave him out there? On, uh, even after a five-yard penalty on a two-point conversion, they still let the offense on the field, and, you know, Pacheco made that incredible dive to get to the pylon. I mean, that stuff, that stuff is, you know, that's a building, that, that's a building block for, for weeks coming up, too. So I think a few criticisms this past weekend um, was the offensive play call, or one criticism, at least, this past weekend was the offensive play calling, the belief that against the Michigan State Gleason, Vedrill, the offense as a whole opened it up more than they did against Indiana. Before we get to just your thoughts on how the offense played, what was your impression of the play calling and what we saw from Sean Gleason in week two compared to what we saw from him in week one? No, I mean, I've, got, I've got zero criticisms of Sean Gleason so far. I think he's been he's been a borderline magician based on what that offense did last year. I think what happened in this game was that early on in the first quarter, Vedrill was holding on to the ball much much longer too long against you know what is the better indiana defense and he got he got creamed a bunch of times he you know led to a couple of turnovers uh and so that i mean i think that just made made uh gleason adjust that they, they had they, they knew they couldn't throw they couldn't they didn't have much, as much time in the pocket as they had against the michigan state to throw the ball down the field i mean they did take a couple of shots and didn't connect on it you know i mean but overall i did you know i have to I have to say that some of the creative stuff that 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 Gleason's done mixing in that you know the you know the, when they bring in Johnny Langan for the change of, change of pace, um, you know and, and remember these are the same crew of receivers as, as last year too and, and these guys couldn't get open last year. I don't know if we looked at a game film this year if you'd see the same thing. I do think Bo Melton's much improved, but other than him, they really don't have a downfield threat, so that's that's still a major problem. And look, Johnny, uh, not Johnny Langan, Noah Vedrill, excuse me, did not have a great game. Like you said, early in that first half, he was holding the ball uh, a long time. Two of the picks that he threw put Indiana in really ideal field position. I think 
two of them both went for touchdowns. Well, you know, Indiana then proceeded to score on offense after the the good field position off of the picks. What did it say to you, though, that because, look, on Twitter and on message boards, people were saying, you know, give Art a chance or, you know, put Johnny Langan out there for more opportunities. What did it say to you that Shiano, even while Johnny Langan and Gleason, too, even while Noah Vedral wasn't right, at least in the beginning of the game, what did it say to you that they stuck with him and they let him work through those mistakes to, you know, eventually in the second half, at least cut it to a one score game? Yeah, I think it says that that he clearly won this job and that he's got the confidence of, of Xiao. Uh, you know, and I think it speaks to that that, 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 that he leads the offense well. I mean, look at the stuff he's done in the running game. I mean, this, this doesn't get enough credit what what Vedril's been able to do. Just I mean, first of all, his own running ability, which is far 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 better than Artsikowski, uh, and even, even better than Johnny Langan. I mean, really, the kid can run really well. Uh, but also just with the misdirection plays and and the play action and, and getting the team in the right runs. I mean, they, you know. I think he's. I think he's really underrated as what he, he he's doing running the offense. You know, he clearly doesn't have the strongest arm, but he is accurate. Uh, you know, and and I think what he saw in that Indiana game, quite simply, was what we saw a lot last year, where he, you know he just drops back. Here's the play, and all of a sudden, you know, he just doesn't have that same amount of time to to make decisions in the passing game. Guys aren't getting open. And he just got he's got crushed a couple of times. Uh, now he's going to you know face one of the best defenses in the country. He's really got he's really got to make that adjustment. I was going to say, you know, that leads me to my next question. You're right; it only gets harder now with Ohio State. How does that offense now make those adjustments so that Vedrill's able either, I guess, to get the ball out quicker, maybe lean on the running game more, you know, maybe set up misdirections or some screens? You know, how do they adjust to if the offensive line is having an inconsistent day? You know, get the ball out so Vedrill isn't feeling pressure every time he drops back. Yeah, you know, I mean, I still look at the Ohio State game as just a matter of survival. I mean, I watched them play a very talented Penn State team uh, this weekend, and it was just, I mean, they just did whatever they wanted to. So I, I just don't, you know, I don't, I don't think Rutgers is at a point now where they can compete with Ohio State. You want to keep people healthy. You want to, you know, try to try to you know, keep the ball as long as possible, you know, uh, get time off the clock, make it, make it a situation where the Ohio State offense is not just going back in the field and, and piling on scores. It's just, it's just a really, they are really, really talented. So I, I'm not sure there's a lot strategy-wise they can do, you know, to, to counter a defense that good. But, uh, you know, I mean, obviously they're going to have to block a lot better. And, I mean, you know, what they have done well this, this year so far in both games is they've run the ball well. So you would hope that if, if there's one thing that you can continue to do, that would certainly take some pressure off Vedral if they can keep up having a running game. I think the biggest upgrade on the field this year compared to last has been the defensive line. And look, we knew that was possible with really the overhaul Greg Schiano did with that group this past uh, offseason. Who has stood out to you in that group? And what do you credit for their success and the push really they've gotten this year so far through two games? Yeah, I don't want to, you know, be, be, be confused with Matt Mellon, but I'm going to have to cool him on this point. <laughs> you know, Dwarm Floor, he must have mentioned the guy's, the kid's name 400 times during during the game. I think it's, it's the only player that Matt Mellon knows is Michael Dwarm No, but he, he's been really good, and so is obviously so is Julius Turner just getting penetration in the middle. You know, I, I think now the big step is ours. So we've seen that they, I mean, they held a very good team, Russian team, you know, to 2.7 yards of carry in Indiana. You know, I, we've seen they can stop the run. Now I'm, now I'm wondering if they can get pressure on the quarterback. We haven't seen enough uh, of that. Michael Penix was very comfortable uh, after a slow start. I think he, I think he had 14, uh, 14 to 16 uh, to end the game, you know, with, with a lot of yards. So, you know, they've got to find a way now to get pressure on the quarterback. 
um, you know, that's going to be the bigger challenge. But you're actually right. I mean, you know, just overall, uh, the defensive line is, is, you know, in my in my mind, by far the most improved part of this team, and it gives them a chance. You know, I mean, it's, you know, finally this defense wasn't wasn't great against. Uh, Indiana, but you know, I mean, considering the way some of these games went last year, it's just so much better. And with the team overall, as we look at really all facets of it, we've seen improvement from a host of players. Who stood out to you with their improvement from play last year to their play this season? You know, there's a bunch of guys, really. I mean, was, this wasn't a great game for the secondary. I don't, I don't, you know, again, I without going too deep on it, but I mean, I, I've loved the way so far that Trey Avery played, that Avery Young has played. I think they've, they've, been, they've both been very good. I think Bo Melton is finally, looks like he's finally taking that step that, you know, you've been, you were waiting, you know, three years for, for this kid to, you know, kind of live up to that four-star recruiting level. I mean, you know, it looks like he is, at least given given Vedra one weapon, and they've kind of like had a, they've had a nice uh, uh, you know relationship so far in the passing game. You know he's good. And I mean, if, I mean like, this is good, obvious one, but after his game, you know when you got Kron Adams, if you, if you get in there and, and he, you know I think you're gonna have to use him more in the offense because he looks like he is a north south true north south runner with a lot of speed, quickness. So I mean I would be surprised if you didn't see more of him. Uh, a couple more from me. One and one through two weeks and this team has looked more competitive and frankly better you know just to be frank about it better than they have the last few years has those positives to you have they increased the ceiling on the team this season in your mind yeah well, i think so look i think the first game and i, I wrote it that, that that first game if greg shannon had a list of like set six or seven boxes he had to check off i thought he checked off five of them just you know winning the opener beating a team at michigan state showing that they can have an offense again you know proving that they improved you know all that stuff is is key now you know what can it mean for results and i think that's gonna be a tricky question you know if you ask me right now at the last of the next uh, six games Will they be favored in any of them? I think that that is an open-ended question. I mean, you would think maybe Maryland, but I mean, Maryland looked pretty good against Minnesota last weekend. Illinois, you know, you know, again, that that's that's going to be uh, going to be a key game. There's just there's just really not a lot of winnable games on the schedule. So, but if they get to three, I mean, and then they play that bonus game and they have a chance against another team, I think that's just a fantastic season. Steve, last one for me. Look, Ohio State, they could obviously win the title this year. It would be a lot to ask for this team in year one under under Shiano to pull off the upset. Obviously, a win would be amazing and would be one of the greatest upsets in college football history if it were to happen, but it would, it would be a lot to ask. But what needs to happen for you to consider this, I guess, a successful trip to Columbus, you know, whenever they then head back home to Piscataway? Uh, I mean, one of them to come back, you know, with, with all their pieces intact to, to move on to the next game. That would be the first thing. I mean, two, just, just show a little bit more. I mean, make it more competitive than it's been. I mean, it's been a 50 nothing game. You know, it's been a name your score game for a while. Uh, you know, I mean, since, since the entire, entirety of time they've been in the league. You know, if this is if this somehow they can get some stops, if this is a, a two-touchdown game at halftime, and you're like, oh, hey, look. You know, and even if it gets out of hand in the second half, at least you saw that they were competitive, that they they got a few stops, they made some turnovers, they made it a little uncomfortable for Ohio State. Well, then that's great. But you know, again, like you mentioned, any expecting anything as far as uh, this to be uh, even a close game is is just not realistic. Steve Politi of NJ.com. Steve, as always, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on. Of course, during this time, be well and most importantly, stay safe. Anytime, my friend. You too. To discuss Ohio State on episode 82 of the On the Banks podcast is Ohio State football reporter for Cleveland.com and the Buckeye Talk podcast, Nathan Baird. Nathan, thanks so much for joining me and giving me some time today to talk Ohio State. Yeah, of course. How's it going? 
It's going good, Nathan. So let's start with the win against Penn State for the Buckeyes. Look, a really dominant performance to get to 2-0. The game ended 38-25, but Ohio State, they were up by almost 20 at one point in the fourth quarter. In your mind, look, can anyone in the Big Ten beat this team? I mean, a shortened offseason, it, it looks like it hasn't affected them. They've dominated the first two games of the year, and it doesn't look like really any team can match up with them on any side of the ball. Is this season for the Buckeyes really just preparation in your mind for the inevitable college football playoff appearance? Yeah, probably. I mean, you never like to let your guard down completely as you're scrutinizing a team. And I think, you know, week to week, we're looking for those things that might prevent that. For instance, in the second half, they definitely, as well as they started off defensively against Penn State, they had some problems in the second half that they have to clean up and, and in some other areas too. But I thought that that was going to be the biggest test. The biggest hurdle to get past was going to play at Penn State. Even though Penn State lost that first game, I think people look inside that game against Indiana and they see that Penn State kind of dominated both sides of the ball in some ways, or at least for long stretches of that game. And if not for uh, some fluky things that happened in that game, which they were guilty of themselves. I mean, they had some problems for themselves. And and that two-point conversion that may, or may not have actually been a two-point conversion, um, Penn State would have won that game. So I think it would have affected the way people looked at them a little bit going into last week. So um, I, I thought that was still going to be the biggest test for them to, to – to clear and they did it pretty comfortably you know it was 21-6 at half Penn State scores on the first drive of the second half so it's a one possession game but then Ohio State answered right back and scored and really had control after that so um I these this next stretch of games and I mean this with, with no uh disrespect to Rutgers but this next stretch of games really the next three or four or five games are, are do not look very intimidating really depending on how good you think Indiana actually is they have to come to Ohio State and then there's that game against Michigan sitting at the end um, that after one week we thought looked like it might be a big challenge. And then the way Michigan seemed to kind of regress last week, maybe not so much. So this is, you know, every year in a high state season is judged by whether you get to the playoff or not. So that's kind of the focus from the start, really. It, it, it's not about how many games will you win. It's about will you avoid any losses? And if you don't, is the rest of your season good enough to get you into the playoff? I think this year um, – just the way the, the landscape is working in all of college football, but also what we're seeing Ohio State have on the field, the connection they have with, with Fields and his receivers, the defense it's maybe figuring some things out. It, it does look like it, it's at least set up for them to make that kind of a run and and be in position to just kind of be working towards that playoff and, and, and setting themselves up to try to, to fix some of these things so they can beat those teams that they might play in the playoffs. So let's take a look at Justin Fields. He's more than likely going number two, of course, depending on who's picking there in the 2021 draft. Even if not number two behind Trevor Lawrence, he will be the second quarterback taken, really without a doubt. He was fantastic last season, but where have you seen him improve this year? And are there any spots that you think he still needs to work on to get even better than what he already is? Yeah, I wouldn't discount that he could still end up being the first quarterback taken, actually, because I think what he has shown is just... Uh, I've referred to it as kind of um, you know, explosive efficiency. I mean, he doesn't turn the ball over. He's really precise. I mean, he's only thrown, I think, five interceptions or five incompletions, I should say, this season, and, and a couple of those were drops. Um, one one was a, a play where the, the defender broke it up, you know, took a guy's legs out, but a couple others were just flat drops by receivers. So, I mean, but we've also seen what he can do as far as, like, having a big arm and then what he can do running the ball, too. And, and he's a threat in both ways. So, not that Trevor Lawrence isn't, too. I'm just saying I, I haven't completely written off. If I were an NFL team, I think I would still be open to still evaluating both of those guys um, as a potential number one guy. I think where he could still improve, and he already is shown this a little bit this year, was just um, the, the, the pocket presence 
and knowing when to throw a ball away and when to take his shot. But the thing is, what what sometimes looks like a setback when he occasionally takes a sack or whatever, I think Ohio State is okay with that, A, because he knows how to get those yards back, usually in that same possession, or certainly later in the game on another possession, just as, as strong as this offense has been. But then also just um, because every once in a while, that waiting that same period is going to get them a big play. We've already we saw that against Penn State a couple plays where he waited, 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 and and let the let the route develop so you could hit a guy for a big gain before he took his shot. And uh, that's they're willing to live with that sometimes. So that's still something he's figuring out. But but his legs and, and the way that he can run make that um, a, a tough position for an, an opposing defense anyway. You can bring pressure on Ohio State. And sometimes you're putting yourself in a worse position because it's opening up something for him to run a, a scramble where he can break off a pretty long run. So obviously, J.K. Dobbins was the guy last year in the backfield, but Master Teague definitely got his share during his redshirt freshman uh, year last season. How would you compare or contrast him from Dobbins as an overall back, and what did he do well against Penn State that allowed him to build off of what was not the most explosive game for him in Week 1 against Nebraska? Yeah, both both Master Teague and Trey Sermon, I thought, didn't have that burst in Week 1. The thing was that both of them are coming off of injuries, and, and Sermon's in a completely new system, too. And this is his first game, first game he had played in pretty much a calendar year because he didn't end his last season at Oklahoma either. And when T got hurt in spring, because he tore his Achilles the first day of spring practice, so when he ruptured that, um, it really threw this running back room into chaos, frankly. Um, it, it was a it was a, it was was a a problem. Uh, they went and got Sermon, and then Teague, uh, just being kind of a physical freak, worked his way back much faster than people expected. But I still think that was a little bit in his mind going into that first game. And I was in- intrigued by what's going to happen after both those guys have actually gotten a game and taken some hits. And we saw a combination of two things, I thought, on this very first drive of the Penn State game. Started off with uh, Garrett Wilson taking a jet sweep and breaking off a 62-yard run. So now they're down in the, the red zone. And the, the first play, of the next play of the game was just a handoff to Teague. But the offensive line created a huge hole for him, which wasn't always there in the first game, I thought, against Nebraska. I thought they did a better job of just asserting themselves. This offensive line that we expect to be probably one of the best in the country. You really saw them kind of setting a physical tone against Penn State. And then Teague hit that line hit that hole like a guy who had been told this week he didn't run hard enough and he just blasted through it got nine yards got four more yards on the next play he's in the end zone and when they needed long drives in the second half of that Penn State game when Penn State started to figure some things out on offense and one of Ohio State's ways of playing defense was to keep the ball away from them longer they really just relied on Teague to grind out yards I don't think he's a guy that in the open field is he's not a guy where you get him the ball in space and he makes a guy miss that's just not his role J.K. Dobbins had that role more. He's going to get to the edge faster. He's going to make guys juke in the or juke in the second level, make guys miss. That that sort of thing is more of his game, even though he was a tough guy too. Master Teague is more just a physical, just like a house, and he's going to blast through you. It doesn't mean he doesn't have any agility, and I think that's something where he thinks he's gotten better. But you'll see it's, it's more his game is when they give him those holes, he has to attack him. He has to attack him. Uh, with uh, ferocity, and that's where he's going to get those yards. Because once he gets up ahead of steam, he's a really tough guy to tackle. So I think that's what I would look at against uh, this game coming up against Rutgers is if they can, you know, the first game Nebraska was having success on some run blitzes, getting into the backfield, hitting Sermon, hitting Teague um, pretty quickly after their handoffs. And uh, that got pretty much wiped out against Penn State. The offensive line for Ohio State was giving them 
um, really pushing forward, uh, pushing out, you know, moving the line of scrimmage on a pretty regular basis. So if they start doing that again and Rutgers is not making contact with Teague until that second level very often, he's just a tough guy to take down because he's the, the size that he is and the speed that he has behind him, um, it, it's, it's pretty powerful. Look, defensively, it's hard enough to replace one draft pick, but Ohio State had to replace three first-round draft picks, two of, which, uh, two of which went in the top three in Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, and then Damon Arnett later in the first round. How have Ryan Day and Greg Madison gone about replacing all of the talent that made such an impact on the defensive line and in the secondary last year? So the defensive line, it was mostly just a, a matter of losing Chase Young as far as the pass rush, or at least that's the way it looks like from the outside. But really, I thought... One of the big questions I had for this defense was, what are they going to do losing three fifth-year senior guys off the interior? Jay Sean Cornell, who was a, a low NFL draft pick. Uh, um, Davon Hamilton, who was a fourth-round draft pick. Uh, Robert Landers, who was a guy who was really respected and got some NFL looks but hasn't, hasn't caught on anywhere yet. But those three guys were a big underrated part of that defense last year. And it was a question not only because we didn't know if the guys who were you know farther back in the rotation were really going to step up this year, but also because some of them were hurt coming into the year. Haskell Garrett was a, is a senior and a guy that they were expecting to be a probably the starter at three technique gets shot in the face in a, a scary incident off campus at the end of at the end of August, like literally the last couple of days of August, he gets shot in the face. So right before the season's about to start again, uh, uh, Teron Vincent, who's a an East Coast guy, a five star guy, um, and the, the son of Troy Vincent, people you know probably remember him pretty well from where you are. Um, he uh, has had lingering injuries, missed all of last season with an injury, uh, didn't play in the season opener. So we didn't know how healthy they were going to be, and they were pretty thin at those spots to start the year. And then Haskell Garrett and then the guy at the nose tackle, Tommy Togia, a guy who was a, more of a rotational guy the first two years in the program, have just been awesome these first two games. I mean, they've just been uh, – they've been maybe the two best players on this defense in some ways, two, the most, two most important players on this defense anyway. And Haskell Garrett was just uh, Big Ten Defensive Player of the Week. I'm sorry, Tommy Togia was. Um, seven tackles and three sacks. You just don't usually see those numbers from a nose tackle, especially against a team like Penn State. So those guys have been a force. And uh, the linebacker unit was really intact, so they didn't have to worry too much about that. The secondary has been, um, was a big question mark and still is, frankly, I think. You know, they got Sean Wade on the corner and uh, was was a, a breakout player, a guy who they thought could have been a, a high NFL draft pick last year, but he chose to come back this year. He moves from slot corner to the outside to replace where they lost Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett, you know, two first-round corners themselves. Um, but a lot of questions after that. Seven Banks is a, a guy who has stepped up and been the other starter opposite Wade. Um, he had some issues at times, I thought, against Penn State. Uh, they brought in, uh, you know, Cam Brown, another junior, to replace him, but he tore his Achilles during the game, um, which has apparently been this weird theme in, in Ohio State's defense the last few years, but uh, and, and offense, I guess you'd say, with Master Team too. So um, he's out for the year, and now that's going to be one area where their depth is going to be tested immediately, as, as early as Saturday. I don't know if there's something that Rutgers can do to try to to pick on some of the guys who are going to be coming in from a depth standpoint. But uh, that would certainly be my plan of attack if I was Greg Schiano is to try to, you know, do what you can against the front line. But at some point, somebody else besides Sean Wade, uh, well, maybe not so much Sean Wade, he'll probably be out there all the time. But, you know, if someone other than Seven Banks is going to be on the field, you've got to take your shot at them and, and try to make Ohio, make that guy prove that he can beat you. In your mind, is the loss against Clemson in the semifinals last year driving this team, especially with all the controversy that surrounded that game? Or is this team looking at that game and last season overall as something that's just in the past, not really on their mind or even used as motivation this year? Oh, no, it, it's definitely on people's mind. I mean, you know, uh, 
Sean Wade didn't play the last half of that game because he got ejected for a targeting penalty that he still, I think, believes is not uh, was not legitimate. Uh, I would argue that he probably was guilty of targeting, but the you know the, whether or not he should have been ejected for it is another thing. Um, but that is the, the letter of the law. Um, Chris Olave broke off a route on the last play of the game, and Justin Fields didn't see it in time, and, and it resulted in an interception that ended that game. So yeah, that's something that's been on his mind. I mean, the individual guys have reasons why that game drives them. Because it was a game that Ohio State uh, was up 16 to nothing and looked like it was in position to move on to the national championship game, and then it, it all kind of fell apart. So there's definitely, you know, even Master Teague. Master Teague uh, subbed in when J.K. Dobbins got hurt, and that's one of the reasons why people weren't necessarily sold as far as the fan base on Master Teague coming into the season was because he didn't do anything. He, he did literally almost nothing once once he replaced J.K. Dobbins in that game. So people are wondering, can you step up in big games? That's motivating him coming into the season. I think overall, though, it's more the fact Clemson's been kind of this weird nemesis for them. You know, they got blown out by them in 2016. They got beat by them in a bowl game a few years before that. I think they're 0-4 all time against Clemson. Um, just It's been this weird – Clemson basically took Ohio State's place as one of the two best programs in the country, right? I mean, it was Alabama and Ohio State were kind of making that argument early on in the playoff era. You know, Ohio State wins the first championship. Um, and then Clemson comes along and kind of nudged them aside and beat them head-to-head in 2016. So – Ever since then, I think Ohio State's kind of been trying to claw back up to get into that top tier with the two of them or try to pull one of them back out. And I think that's what motivates them as much as anything. That, that Last year, they had such a collection of talent on both sides of the ball. You're going to look back in time and think, how did that team not win a national championship or at least let alone get there and face LSU and get their chance to play for a national championship? And I think that's what they felt got away from them, was that it was just an underachievement that they didn't even get to that level. And this is the last go-around for a lot of these guys, whether it's Wyatt Davis, who's going to be in the NFL next year, Sean Wade, Justin Fields, maybe Chris Olave as receiver, maybe Josh Myers, the center, um, all these linebackers that are seniors that have been starting for this team for three years. I think there's a lot of motivation that at some point in their careers, they were supposed to win a national championship, and this is it. This is their last chance at it. So I think that pushes them as much as anything. But, but certainly the Clemson thing has just been like this weird bugaboo for this team. And it's something that I think they, if they got to face Clemson again in the playoffs this year and got to like settle that face-to-face on the field, I think they would uh, relish that opportunity. A couple more from me, Nathan. Look, it's been a few years since Coach Gianna was on staff at Ohio State. And of course, Coach Day never worked underneath him. They were coordinators together under Urban Meyer, I think, for about a year. Has Coach Day said anything about his relationship, if they even have one at all, with Coach Ciano having been on that same staff for that year in Columbus? Yeah, he mentioned it today, and it was it was during um, uh, just our, our wider media availability, and it was uh, I was kind of writing as I was listening. So some of those things, uh, I didn't get the exact quote, but I know that he spoke highly of him and spoke, I think most importantly, from a Rutgers standpoint, what, he's, what he d- discussed was that the job, he, he believes that Greg Ciano is the right guy for this job, and we'll build this program back into something. I think that's what everyone around the Big Ten was kind of looking around last year, wondering what is Rutgers doing? Why aren't they getting this done? Because this is clearly maybe the one guy in the country that you could hire for that job. Look, not to- not only not only was the Big Ten wondering that, Nathan, I can guarantee you all the Rutgers fans over here were saying the same exact thing. I was saying the same exact I, I thing. <laughs> I, I understand. And, 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 you know, and because it's, he's done it. He's proven that he can do it. Now, the circumstances were different, I understand. But as, as he said yesterday in his media availability that I was listening to uh, on Monday, you know, he was pushing to get the Big Ten, according to him, as early as, like, 2002. Like, he understands what Big Ten football is. 
and that this is a different challenge. That if you know if, if Rutgers was in a different conference, they'd be having an easier time of it right now, frankly, right? Um, but that's not what he he believes. I think in Rutgers as a Big Ten program now, how do you get them there? And I think it's going to have to be uh, it's not going to be overnight. I thought it was huge that they won that first game this year, though. I thought just at a, from a recruiting standpoint, getting a getting a road win on the Big Ten early in the season, I, I think is an important thing, um, especially in a year where you've kind of been out of sight, out of mind as far as like not playing games and kind of not being in the in the in the minds of probably the the footprint of where you're recruiting i mean uh, so I, I think it's imp- i think he will be a guy who can get them to do something you know i i said on our own podcast before as we've talked about just the strengths of the big 10 i'm like there's no excuse why rutgers and maryland can't be doing what indiana is there's no reason why rutgers shouldn't be uh, at no point is rutgers going to probably rise up to the ohio state level um, I, and I say that as someone who came in, I've only been here for a year. I'm not an Ohio State homer, but let's just face facts. I mean, they recruit at a level that most Big Ten schools uh, don't and really probably can't aspire to in some ways. But there's no reason Rutgers can't be Michigan State, right? I mean, they could be a team that wins six, seven games a year pretty regularly. They could do the kind of things that Indiana is doing, winning eight games last year against a pretty uh, uninspiring schedule. But that's kind of the same kind of schedule that Rutgers plays year in and year out as far as non conference and things. So. Um, get up you know, once in a while. You jump up and take your shot and knock off a Penn State. Um, you're not going to do it every year, but there's a level of success that all these Big Ten schools can reasonably aspire to. It's just a matter of getting the right coach there to figure it out. And I think Rutgers has probably done that. I think maybe even Maryland has done that, but we'll see. They've still got a ways to go to. Nathan, last one for me. What has been Ryan Day's message to the players surrounding COVID and being safe, especially in a state like Ohio right now, where the virus is surging? Because for a team like Ohio State. And we're seeing it with Clemson. They lose Trevor Lawrence, and they suddenly look a lot more beatable and had to really work to pull one out against Boston College. What is Coach Day and this team doing to stay healthy and avoid a state, avoid a fate excuse me, like Wisconsin, where they have impact players out and have to even skip a game because of everything going on? Yeah, and Ohio State just had its first little scare, at least the first known scare. Although they, they, they did back during, I guess it was in June, they shut down uh, practice for about a week because they had some tests and they wanted to make sure it was... I think it was an abundance of caution that they shut things down so it didn't get out of hand, and they were able to start practice again the next week. And as far as we know, there have been no more shutdowns. They're pretty secretive about injuries and things. They have not released their COVID testing results the way some schools have. But as far as we know, they've been more or less clean since then. Uh, they did on Saturday have a player who tested a, a, a senior linebacker named Justin Hilliard, and it's a it's a rough story because he's a sixth-year guy, a captain, a guy who had a petition to get this sixth year to play, and he tested positive with the rapid antigen testing uh, before the game on Saturday. They did the PCR test after that, and he tested negative. So it appears that that antigen test was a false positive, but because of the Big Ten protocols, he wasn't able to play in the game. And guys like that only have so many games left, and he kind of got robbed of one, possibly, by a false positive. So they they are dealing with that, and they, they were frustrated by that. But they look at what's happening in Wisconsin, and it gives them even more incentive to stay diligent. And that's really been what Ryan Day's been preaching, to the point that he like starts to worry about like wearing the players out with it that at some point and i think we all know i don't think it's even fair to say this just about young people but probably just all human beings in general that sometimes when you hear it day in and day in and day in and day out that it you can tune it out as much as you absorb it at to some at some point and i think what they have been trying to do is just keep pounding into them that uh, you have there you can't be careful enough like you, you, if you just assume that every person that walks past you has COVID, 
then you might get through a football season. And if you don't, maybe you don't. And it's just, that's a weird way to have to go through life, but it's, there's more incentive for them to do it besides just what the personal health issues could be. But as far as like keeping the the locker room uh, and keeping your entire roster clean, I think that's what is at stake here. They know that one person as has been proven with the Wisconsin thing, because the big 10 testing was supposed to prevent these outbreaks, right? It was supposed to catch the one positive before it became 12, before it became 27. It didn't happen in Wisconsin. We'll see if, if there's some other programs that have had similar issues. There are definitely hints out there that some other programs have had uh, some issues, not to the Wisconsin extent, but some issues. So I, I think at Ohio State, it's just been, from what we're told from the players and from Day himself, it's just a constant message of keep your mask on, don't go out. You have to just be, on a daily basis, you have to be ultra vigilant. Because it's they, they have so much at stake, right? I mean, frankly, I, 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 hope, I, I assume Rutgers is also being very diligent. I assume Michigan State and Purdue and Kentucky and Wyoming are all being diligent, right? I'm not trying to say that they're not. But if you're at Ohio State and you think you have a chance to win a national championship, and, and even at a place that aspires to pretty big things every year, that's still somewhat rare to go in as like a front-runner kind of situation for the national championship, then you have a lot at stake if, you, if the one guy brings in the virus. So I think that that's just giving them extra incentive to be really diligent and uh, keep harping on it every week. Nathan Baird of Cleveland.com and the Buckeye Talk podcast. Nathan, really appreciate you coming on to talk Ohio State. Thanks for joining me. And of course, right now, you know, with everything going on in Ohio, of course, be well and, and most importantly, stay safe. Yeah, of course. Thanks a lot. Same to you guys. I want to thank Steve and Nathan for coming on the podcast to discuss Rutgers and Ohio State. Look, Ohio State is favored by, I believe, over four touchdowns for a reason. All I'm personally looking for is the Scarlet Knights to at least keep it relatively close in the first half, and most importantly, come back healthy when they return to Piscataway. There's a winnable game in Week 4 against Illinois, and it's crucial Rutgers is ready to go when the fighting Illini come to town. This team, through the first two games, has shown fight. This team has shown that they do not quit. And even when they were struggling against Indiana, they stuck together and were able to bring it to within one score in the second half. And of course, had that crazy lateral play counted, which, you know, maybe I'm a biased fan, but I believe it should have. They would have been down one score with a chance at recovering an onside kick to get another opportunity to tie it up. This season, while they're 1-1, one one, it's been a fun one. This team is so different than teams the past few years, and that's really all we as fans could ask for. Ohio State coming up, look, it's a huge challenge and one of those moving targets that Greg Schiano referred to in his opening press conference that eventually this team wants to pass. Now I say eventually because, look, we all know it's not going to happen in year one. This is a process. But whatever happens Saturday, health is most important. There are more winnable games coming up for the Scarlet Knights and coming home ready to go for week four and beyond as well is crucial for Rutgers here on the banks. Follow On the Banks on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Just search On the Banks Podcast.